If I say the word beer, what do you think of? If you'd asked me that same question any time up to just two years ago, I would have said it's a man thing and it tastes really bitter. Then I opened an ancestral door that completely changed my views and experience of beer. I didn't know, for example, that women have been the predominant brewers of beer throughout history up to just 400 years ago. Neither did I know that up till that same time period, beer tasted completely different to the beer that we are used to now. Join us in this episode to hear the real story of beer, how we messed it up, and why I'm so passionate about bringing beer back to where it belongs, the kitchen. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Good morning, Alison. Hey, good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I'm so excited for this episode. This has been one that um, you've been teasing me with for a long time. So Mm. I'm really ready for this. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say thank you to our patrons who are bringing this podcast to you. We have two new patrons, Marianne, who is in Norway, and Sarah. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name right. But it is you. She is in Canada. It's in Canada. Wow. (laughs) I'm really good at grammar. So she's (laughs) in Canada. And that's cool, Allison. Two people in two completely different countries. Yeah. Probably never would have been into each other in real life. um, Someone in Norway. Yeah. And um, seeing seeing Marianne on the Discord channel, sort of chatting about, you know, what, what her seasons yes. are like and the grain she's got in Norway. Did she just, say she has wonderful. The, the black oats that you talked about? Yeah. Ugh, that's amazing. That. Like, who knew? They must be really hardy. Yeah, I think they are. That's, yeah. that's the joy of oats. Is Sarah in the Discord Indeed. yet? Do you know? Not I can't yet. see no, her in there. Okay. No, I haven't seen her awesome. yet. No. Hopefully she can pop up in there. The Discord is really fun. It's just a, you know, chat place where we can all get together and visit and share recipes and talk about things like roasting a goose. <laughs> yeah. Nick, looking at you. <laughs> um, and speaking of the patrons, Allison, as of this recording, you and I had um, a couple of weeks ago, we just had one of our, another KTC live which is really yeah, fun. Every life, yeah. Yep. Every yeah, I should probably say what KTC means. <laughs> um, so every third Saturday of the month, Allison and I hop on a Zoom and any patrons that wish to also jump on and join us and we talk about food and we record it and it goes up on the private podcast feed. So if mm-hmm. you're a patron who lives, you know, on the bottom of the world or something in the time zone just doesn't work for you then um, you can listen to it after. Yeah, But literally everybody yeah. does sit at their kitchen tables. <laughs> so yeah, really exactly. are. it is a kitchen table chat. Yeah. We're all just sitting around chatting. It was so yep. lovely to see so many people last it time. Is. And I'm hoping that the one that we do on Saturday will be um, 
a really good chat too. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, I feel like stuff, well, you know how it is when you and I just talk, Alison, stuff comes up in conversation that yeah. you might not necessarily have thought of putting down as a question, but just the conversation brings it up and um, we all yeah, came away completely. learning something with something new. So I'm feeling really inspired. Yep. And Alison, do you have, speaking of inspired and the people who inspire us, <laughs> you have two reviews to read. Yeah, what a good segue that was. <laughs> you are a pro. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, we have had some lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I've got two to read out. Um, the first one is by G. Beners. That's what the little tag is on Apple, and it says, Great show. I recently stumbled upon the Ancestral Kitchen podcast, and I absolutely love it. I've learned so much by listening, and I've gotten so many new ideas for the kitchen. I've also taken to putting schmaltz on my bread. So delicious. Mm. And I'm looking forward to trying more of the talked about dishes. I mostly listen on my long drive in and home from a very stressful job. And the discussions help me to relax, be in a better mental place and plan future meals. Thank you both for sharing. Well, thank you, G. Berners, if that's how you say your name. Thank you ever so much well, for the if, lovely review. If you have a... You have a stressful job. This is the episode for you. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That was a no, five star. Awesome. We got another five star review from Dana Bailey, who says, "Well done. Very rarely do I anticipate a new episode from a podcast. I can usually take or leave most shows, but this pod has been lovingly binge listened." And I cannot wait to hear oh what you gosh. two do next. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Thank you so much ah, for a wonderful I love it. podcast. Thank you. Isn't that nice? Uh, really beautiful. That's an amazing Thank you review. for Thank leaving you reviews. Both. If you're on Apple, you can do that. Um, on Spotify, you can, you can star us. But on Apple, you can write some lovely words like that. And we love yeah. reading them. Thank you. Wonder, have you eaten, Andrea? If I, well, oh, sorry. if I had iTunes, could I review our own podcast? I don't have iTunes. I guess I can't oh, write a fake I don't know. review. Is that cheating? <laughs> I don't know why she's <laughs> okay i well i didn't eat a real meal but i cut some of the raw cheddar i sliced some raw cheddar that i got from azure standard and mm -hmm. i made the, remember i told you i made the coffee with that um mushroom mix in oh, it yeah yeah so i made yeah. that with the hot chocolate one that they have so they have one that's hot chocolate it has like cocoa powder maple sugar Mm. and a bunch of mushrooms <laughs> i don't know oh, what sounds called. nice so it's like yeah. a, a a sort of a mochaccino kind of thing mm -hmm. with coffee mm -hmm. and chocolate yeah hmm. sure that, that name sounds good and prestigious and then i mixed in a fair amount of raw cream so i really feel like if i have you know a quarter cup of raw cream in the morning i can go for a pretty long time on that fuel <laughs> i think that sounds really mentally kind of satiating as well because you know you've got that cheese you've got the cream and you've got cocoa powder and you've got coffee you know having those yeah. in a sort of a quick hit in the morning you feel like wow it checks I've, a lot of boxes. I've really yeah I've yeah. really had something luxurious and nice yeah Sounds yummy. and raw cream that you separate yourself is probably for somebody who's like yeah, gagging goodness. right now I should say it's more yes. closer to half and half <laughs> than okay. like a heavy whipping cream Sounds um, lovely. It is lovely. And did you have lunch? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, I made a cast iron ground meat, as you would say, ground meat. I would say yes. mince um, with yes. lots of things in. Um, 
I had pork mince and cabbage and leeks and oh. um, savoy cabbage as well and some chard, caraway seeds, cumin seeds. Um, I ran out of coriander seeds, got to get them. Um, and some garlic and some stock, some pork stock. Bit of everything, really. That recipe is in the forthcoming cookbook because it's so versatile. I make it differently each time and um, it's just... It's a, a staple. Had that with some sourdough spelt bread with lard and salt and some sauerkraut on the top of the um, ground meat. Really delicious. Oh, I saw that I should have said in the book and the picture. Mm. Yum. Yeah, it's tasty. It's easy and tasty. And um, there's it leftovers for Gable to take to school tomorrow, oh, which makes better. a difference to me. You know, it means I don't have to prep or anything else. And what I was going to say is I should have said for this episode that I had beer with it. Unfortunately, I'm not that organised and I didn't. <laughs> that would have been perfect, wouldn't it? Well, let's just end now. We're done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So today we are talking about beer. And really, what have we done to beer and what can we do about beer? And this is kind of a culmination of two years of playing around um, over here in my kitchen. Um, and the first thing I really wanted to ask, Andrea, was to ask you what you think about beer, you know, what your kind of um, mm -hmm. preconceptions and, and what beer means to you. Oh, uh, well, I, yeah, I didn't grow up with beer in the house since my parents ch chose not to drink alcohol. And mm. so as a kid, I always thought it was like bad, evil. <laughs> <laughs> Even though nobody really said that, I just, you know, assumed. And mm. as an adult, then when I finally tried beer, I was like, oh, wow, I wasn't missing anything. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I just, I've kind of always thought it's something guys drink when they're watching football and um, it's gross and it comes in cans and yeah. they put pictures okay, of it on so the side of trucks. <laughs> even though, I mean, my parents did drink and my dad drinks um english bitter and guinness and that kind of thing and um i grew okay. up with you know him having that every now and again when he used to go out and play cricket i still got the right. same view as you in that predominantly right. for me until about two years ago beer was a man's thing it was drunk by men it was made by men it was you know my my ex-husband used to drink it you know every night down the pub and okay. I just didn't uh -huh. like the taste of it. You know, I'd, I'd sometimes I'd try some of his or I'd try some other beers and, and it just, it just tastes horrible. Bitter, horrible, didn't like them. And, <laughs> and because of that, when I did used to drink <clears throat> when I was younger, um, I was always a wine person, not a beer person. So we kind of oh, got okay. similar views on it. And I think there's a lot of people who think that they don't like the taste of beer yeah. and men drink beer. And, and I like should... I said, until, mm, go on. Oh, no, I, I, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, until two years ago, I thought that, you know, that, that, that's oh, what beer has okay. been for me all my yes. life. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that I should add that my two exposures to ancestral beer were when I was very mm -hmm. small. I remember my mom reading a book called Stories of the Pilgrims, and they described how much beer they took on the Mayflower and how much mm -hmm. each adult and child drank. And I thought as a kid, what? <laughs> and <laughs> gross. Everybody is drunk all the time. And then I also learned when I was in my 
um, heavy ancient Egypt phase that they would brew a thick beer with bread. And then they, I was very fascinated by these um, artifacts of straws with holes in it that they would drink it through. And we, us kids, as we called ourselves, us kids Mm. would say, how disgusting is that? (laughs) (laughs) So those are my two ancestral exposures. I think that that beer now, basically, to to kick off the episode, is industrial. Um, although there are growing craft brewers around who do it on a smaller scale, really, beer is industrially made. It's not homemade. Um, it's the same consistently. People want the same flavours, or people have been um, educated to want the same flavours, and so every beer of a certain make has to taste exactly the same, whether you buy it, you know, in in America or England, whether you buy it two years um, apart, you know, it always has to be the same. Beer is bitter. And beer is drunk by men. And beer is brewed by men. You know, there really aren't many women involved in brewing. There's a a small resurgence of women brewing in the last kind of 10 years. But really, that's what beer is now. But beer has not been like that for most of history literally that's how beer has been for the last 150 200 years beer has been drunk for 7,000 years in fact some of the research that I've done said some people posit that it was beer not bread that caused us to settle down and want to have agriculture and grow yeah, grains. I can see that. <laughs> um, I can see yeah. that. <laughs> and until industrialization, women were the primary brewers of beer around the world. When you start to dive into this, you realize how widespread it was that women were brewers. So you can you start with perhaps the most famous example of it, Ninkasi is the ancient Sumerian goddess of beer. And there's a piece of poetry called the Hymn to Ninkasi, which is dated about 1500 um, before Christian era. And then you go into the myths of so many different types of um, populations and cultures, the Vikings, the Slavic, the Egyptians, Chinese, Japanese, African, South American. You know, if you read World Fermentation, you know that women used to chew or still do chew corn to um, help release its starches before it's brewed up in chicha in South America. And really to go through um, archaeological pictures, to go through poetry, to go through myth, you, you find all over the globe that women were the brewers. In Europe, um, women were the brewers until the monasteries took over in on continental Europe. So, you know, in kind of Germany, France, the, the continental part of Europe in the 11th century. Um, and that was to do with the church wanting to own brewing. In England, the country where I come from, women brewed in their kitchens. So they took the grain and they malted it. They dried that malt over the fire. They made liquid with it sugary liquid to ferment they fermented that liquid with a local yeast culture and they gave that resulting brew to their families to drink um just like you you saw on that um 
on that ship, the Mayflower. Children drank beer, uh, women drank right. beer, men drank beer, everyone drank beer. Um, and if there was beer left over, the women would give it to the neighbours, sell it to the neighbours. Some women had small businesses in their towns selling beer locally. And they used to do it every week, just like a bread-making routine might be, mm -hmm. because beer, or as it was back then, ale, which we'll talk about a bit later, didn't keep. Um, the, the thing in beer now that allows it to keep is the addition of hops that changed the whole kind of history of ale and beer. And because hops weren't in the brewed drink then, beer was made literally weekly because it would go off. And wow. in England and, and, and throughout the world, it was women's work, either because it was a household task, just like making bread was. And so in England, you know, the women made the bread, the women brewed the beer. Or... In other cultures, because and earlier cultures, because beer was really closely linked to rituals. You know, it was used ceremonially, and women had a really important role to play in preparing for the rituals. Um, so it it is completely different to how we view beer now. You know, we view beer as a man's thing, totally. but historically, until two hundred years ago. Beer was a woman's thing, not a man's thing. Well, I think we actually view beer as a recreational thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it wasn't in the past. It was ceremonial or it was actually needed and drunk every single day as part yeah. of kind of life, as part of hydration. Mm. Yeah. And that was part of not getting dysentery, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> So funny. When are you are you going to mention that book um, now, mm. or were you going to mention it at the end? I was going to. I can mention it now. Okay, because I was going to say something about so, yeah. that book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that book, that book is a fabulous book that um, I spent a lot of time poring over the last year, which it's is thick. a book called Ale, Beer, and Brewsters in England by an academic called Judith Bennett. And that's where I've learned so much about Brewsters. And Brewsters is a term for women who brew. So I, when right. I brew my beer, am a Brewster. Um, and I think it comes from England originally, the term Brewster. Um, so it's a book all about how um, women were the brewers in England, how they brewed, um, the evidence to show that, and then how that changed when industrialization came along. You know, William yeah, and Mary Brewster were two of the pilgrim parents on the ship. And yeah. they had, they had, they brought with them their son's love and wrestling. And then they had three other children that they left in, um, back in, um, mm. Holland that came later, Jonathan, and then their daughters, um, patience and fear. Wow. I love Puritan names. <laughs> Yeah, I just yeah, want so to they, they must have been Brewsters. <laughs> they must have been Brewsters. Yeah, I guess, or descended of Brewsters, one or the other. Yeah, and you yeah, had yeah, told yeah. me. So this was this is a funny thing that doesn't really have anything to do with um, food, kind of. But <clears throat> if listeners want to hear my voice somewhere else, <laughs> then mm -hmm. uh, do you remember I told you, Allison? You told me about that book, and I got it. Mm. 
And around the same time, a friend asked me if I would do some voice acting for Mm -hmm. a podcast he was making. And the character he wanted me to play was a female Brewster in (laughs) (laughs) um it's it's like in a fantasy world that he created but it's like a medieval based kind of like lord of the rings type thing oh yeah yeah and it's so channeling the brewsters yeah yeah and it's such a cool like I, i don't know how much i can say about project since I don't think it will be out by the time this podcast goes out but um, if people will follow you could go to the website or the Instagram it's called can't quit comics this is the company that he made so that you know he wouldn't have to be told what to say he was like I want to say what I want to say and draw what I want to draw mm-hmm. and yeah. he creates amazing artwork and he's got this team of amazing people and they're putting together this incredible music and all these incredible voice actors on this. I mean, it is so mind blowing. It is so mind blowing. So if people follow that, then when that comes out, they'll be able to hear some really fun quality content. That's yeah, it sounds like fun to be clean. (laughs) Yeah. It is a really fun project and I'm really thrilled to be a part of it and to see it unfold because I've never been behind the scenes on anything like this and we should put that in the show notes so people we should yeah we'll put it in the show notes too and see it nice nice. yeah when I first heard Allison talking about boza the fermented drink made of millet that's a household name in Turkey I felt as if I was being transported back to a bazaar in the Ottoman Empire or traveling the Silk Road on the back of a camel, and I knew I wanted to taste it. Boza is fizzy, sweet, tart, and it's full of probiotics. You can drop it into your smoothies, spoon it on top of your breakfast, or drink it in the traditional way they still do in Istanbul, topped with cinnamon and toasted chickpeas. Fermented millet drinks were first made in that region of Europe in the 8th century BC, and as with all of Allison's courses, she's gone above and beyond in research and experimentation and testing on Rob and Gabe and given us an easy way to recreate the goodness in her own homes. If you'd like a fun and tasty way to get more probiotics into your life, bring her into your kitchen and have her walk you through how to bring this ancestral dairy-free, gluten-free fermentation recipe with her amazing Boza video course. Head to www.ancestralkitchen.com slash Boza, B-O-Z-A, to check out the video course. And happy fermentation! So but who knew that was going to happen? <laughs> you, yeah, you would have been um, in that kind of environment before industrialization, where where right. women did the brewing, and then when industrialization came along, women were slowly pushed out of the brewing world, mm. and like brewing so was taken things. out of the kitchen, like so many other things, out of the community. And taken to a place where it could make a profit. So, as with so many other things in industrialization, um, that really started a chain of events which has led to the beer that we know these days. Um, and 
I wanted to explain kind of how that happened. Okay. So first of all, we go back to Pasteur, who I know we talked about recently on the Raw Milk episode. <laughs> Him again. That wonderful man, yes. <laughs> His discovery in the 1850s um, led to commercial beer yeast being developed in the 1880s. Wait, we so should... Then, mm-hmm. We should jump on this for just one second isn't it because yeah. of wine that he w- he wasn't researching for the mm-hmm. safety of milk or anything like that it was because of wine and preserving yeah. wine wasn't he commissioned by like napoleon or something that's correct and okay. then he was able to isolate exactly what was happening during a degrega- right. degradation process and all the fermentation okay. process put a, n- a nice spin on it degradation fermentation <laughs> <laughs> and so then really his his discovery was only meant for one thing, but it was then applied to a lot of other things and changed a lot of other things. And and brewers actually took his science and then developed in a lab a beer yeast. So that was the kind of first thing that moved beer on. And then the second thing was hops. As I alluded to earlier... Um, hops weren't originally used routinely in beer, but they were introduced into England, the place that I know the most about, in the 1500s from um, the Flemish market, so kind of Holland and Germany, who were already using hops. And the important thing about hops is that they're antibacterial. So in uh, a fermentation that is alcoholic, the thing that produces the alcohol generally is the yeasts, and those are the things you want to encourage. Right. Bacteria that, if they are in your fermentation, they can produce other flavors. And those flavors, those bacteria, if they are allowed to um, proliferate in your beer, can sour it or make it go sour much quicker. So, before hops, as I said, beer didn't keep, you had to drink it in a few days. Putting hops into beer meant that beer would keep. And that was absolutely instrumental because it it meant that beer could be made on a much, much bigger scale. You could make it, you could bottle it, you could sell it, you could transport it. And then it just, it wasn't part of a, a daily, weekly routine in a local area only anymore. Its possibilities became much wider. Um, and so wouldn't, that's, wouldn't uh, you lose yeah. benefits by, you know, you and I know that multiple ferments, yeah. you know, kefir and things, uh, or kombucha, you you have some yeast and you have some bacterias and you don't want to lose either of those, really. Mm. That, that's an interesting point because the, the loss of diversity in mm. um, having a single yeast culture, which is what? Um, was developed off the back of Pasteur's discovery right. has means that the beers that are being produced today do not have that diversity at all. And also having hops in them means that they don't necessarily have a bacterial input. Some craft brewers do add bacteria under kind of very sterile guided conditions in order to bring out certain flavours. But the diversity was lost and, and importantly, for, for what happened with industrialization, the, the need to make it fresh and regularly was lost. And that meant 
what happened was it 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 went commercial. It went into it turned from a product that was made in people's kitchens to a product that was made in factories. And in the UK, which is the area that I know most about, the change from homemade kitchen ale that only lasted a few days to industrial beer made in factories, it was pushed by Pasteur's discovery and pushed by hops. But then there were lots of other kind of social and economic factors that meant that that resulted in women being pushed out. So, for example, in order to make beer on a big scale, you need a lot more equipment than you do if you're just making it in your kitchen with a kettle and some containers. And, of course, if you're going to set up an enterprise, you've got to buy that equipment. You've got to have a bigger space. You've got to buy all this extra equipment. And in medieval England, women couldn't get loans. They weren't, you know, they were women, not men. Men could go and borrow money to buy equipment and to buy space, and, and women couldn't. So women couldn't move to producing on a larger scale. In addition, at the same time as industrialization kind of blossomed, guilds were set up. So, um, you know, there was the Guild of this, the Guild of Brewing, the Guild of um, Butchery, the Guild of other things. And women couldn't take part in those guilds. So all the networking that was happening, all the kind of loans and different things that were happening as part of those guilds, all the protection that was afforded right, to the people right. who were part of guilds by the local governments, women just didn't, didn't get a look in. And then that just mushroomed. And it just meant that the, the woman who was brewing beer in her kitchen every week just faded slowly over like 100, 150 years. And the whole thing was taken into factories and commercially processed and shipped around and run by men. Which is, in my view, a shame. <laughs> a shame. And it's something that fascinates yeah. me and has fascinated me yeah. for, for, the last, for the last two years, really. In my very brief reading of beer in America, um, mm. I, I just looked to see what, you know, the colonials did. And the article I read, which I can link here, it's not a scholarly yeah. article or anything, but they said that when people emigrated here, they had a hard time making beer that tasted like what they were used to because of the wild yeast. Okay. And they imported hop sieves from oh. England and That's brought them here. They weren't, it wasn't something that grew here. And now it grows like everywhere here. <laughs> Our neighbors have hops that grow up on a vine thing. Yeah, yeah. And wow. there was this little ditty from the 1630s that made me think of mm. you. <laughs> mm. it, as, I'll read it. It says, If barley be wanting to make it a malt, we must be content and think it no fault. For we can make liquor to sweeten our lips of pumpkins and parsnips and walnut tree chips. Mm. I thought it was funny. <laughs> That's nice. That's it. it shows the kind of different things that were used to yeah. brew. Yeah. I mean, though we have a tradition of using grains to brew, but obviously beers were brewed with tree saps, they were brewed with squash, they were brewed with anything that had sweetness in it. And and that, wherever you found yourself, you know, that South American chicha brew is made with corn because corn is what mm. grows there and it has yeah. starch in it. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, that's interesting as well, because 
If those people came over, for example, on the Mayflower and they were coming from Holland, then Holland had hops a lot sooner, a lot longer before oh, England did. And so probably they point. were used to having beer with hops. And getting so the when taste. they came to um, the States, if there were no hops there, then they would have had a very different tasting beer. Sure. Which, yeah. um, which we, and if they we had, can actually talk about because it tastes they, completely different. Yeah. Totally. If they had a hoppy beer also, I don't know if they did when they were on the Mayflower, but it, then mm. it would have lasted for the whole trip. Yeah. Yeah, completely. But I don't know. I don't know how long it, how long did it take for the, Mayfair, for the Mayflower to get across? Too long. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't have had ale then because it wouldn't have lasted. Literally, it lasts like four no. days. That's it. Yeah, it was not four days. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So let's talk about the, the difference between the brewing that we have now and the brewing that um, ancient or medieval ales um, used. Because, you know, a lot of people home brew now. And the word home, you know, they're doing it in their kitchen. They're not commercial right. brewers. But right. their processes are very, very different to how beers would have been brewed before industrialization. And, and I wanted to kind of explain the two differences so you can see clearly what's changed. So if we look at modern home brewing, that uses chemically sanitized vessels that are closed to air, literally. So they're designed to keep out unwanted, in quotes, bacteria. Okay. Home brewing uses industrially made dried malt, which you can you know, buy from brewing supplies. Or some people use a jar of syrup, like, you know, like a hmm. looks like a jar of molasses, barley malt wow. syrup, which has been made by someone who's malted barley. And then that's been made into a syrup. And people use that as their sugary kind of source rather than using the actual malt. Then a, a liquid, which wait, is called wait. wort. Yeah, no, you want me to Rather stop? than, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you um, know more than I know. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. they use the syrup instead of using what grain okay so, so instead of using can, a grain to produce the malt yeah so no you have to in order to brew you have to have a sugary liquid which is called wort okay. and you can make that and it's traditionally made by mixing malted grains in hot water and that draws out their sugars and that leaves them in the liquid and then you ferment that sugary liquid but a lot of home brewers don't mix actual malted grains with water they have a jar of syrup right. which okay. is an extract of those malted grains made in a factory and they mix that with water and then ferment that what is can you define a malted grain for me yeah okay so a malted grain is a grain that has germinated and then you can okay. see its tail I mean, we'd call it sprouted, I guess, in the ancestral food community. Uh -huh. And then um, during that process, the starches are converted and certain enzymatic reactions happen. Uh -huh. And then when it has germinated to the correct amount, when the tail is a certain length, that germination is stopped by drying. And then that um, grain is kind of held in suspension in that kind of germinated form it's sugars in a different state to what it was when it was just a solid, you know, oat grain or barley grain. And then that malt is used in the beer. 
So that is a malted. So sprouted is malted. Am I understanding? Yeah, sprouted is malted. Yeah, basically. I did not know that. Yeah. So when you make that buckwheat stuff that we talked about in the, you know, three nourishing Mm. traditions recipes I love Mm. episode, you're basically malting the buckwheat? Yeah. The science of malting is very, very complicated, as yeah, many don't, patronizing don't as many patronizing <laughs> brewers have told me when <laughs> I told them I make my own malt. They <laughs> said, Oh, malting's a science, you've got to do a degree in it. I'm like, no, I'm just doing it in a do you, little jar in the kitchen. You know, actually. Alison, that is the same thing that, that homeschool moms run into when you say when you say, Oh, I just love reading Googe and they say, Oh, she's one of the minor Victorian you know, you, you need, you need to, you need a good education yeah. in literary science, you know, literary to, to be able to, <laughs> to read good. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I have a high school degree and I diploma. Wow. So that- <laughs> I, I'm really smart. I have a high school diploma and I, I enjoy reading good and exactly. well and <laughs> enjoy. That's the word. isn't yeah. it? Enjoy. <laughs> So I think there is, you know, there is a difference probably that you would, you know, you would not want a malted grain you're using beer to have grown any green on it. You know, that's too far. You've got to try to understand how far you can malt a grain, how far you want that sprout to come out before you go, right, I'm going to stop it now. And I'm still learning that. And I probably don't even need to ask this, but I assume that syrup may or may not have questionable ingredients in it. Like it's not something you and I would say in a pinch, I'd use this. Um, Probably. I certainly wouldn't use it. I don't yeah. know. I haven't seen a jar, so I don't know what ingredients. I think actually it's just it's just barley malt syrup. Um, I don't think it has extra things in. I think. Who knows? But I haven't used it, so I don't, don't know trust that. it. No. Um, so that's the the liquid that you ferment, and then home brewers nowadays buy a packet of yeast that's been cultured in a laboratory. And they will usually wake that yeast up by putting it in something. And then they will pitch. The word pitch is when you actually add the yeast to your brew. They will pitch that laboratory strain of yeast into their beer. And that yeast is usually a single culture. There are a myriad different types that have been um, developed in labs for particular styles of beer and lager. So that's the yeast that's used. And then hops are also added to um, modern home brewing in various different ways. You can dry hop, you can wet hop, you can do all these different things with hops. But hops are added to sanitise the brew, to keep the bacteria population down, and also to bitter the brew, because that's what we are used to now. We're used to being tasting bitter. So people add hops. Did you know we have a Patreon for the listeners of the Ancestral Kitchen podcast? That's right. Can't get enough of this. Well, there's more of it over on the Patreon feed just waiting for you. We have a variety of levels to choose from and a bunch of different benefits to enjoy. Your sponsorship keeps the podcast on the air ad free and helps us keep buying books to read and talk about on the podcast. It also helps Allison buy bizarre ingredients at the farmer's market so she can ferment them and tell us about them later. Check us out at patreon.com slash ancestral kitchen podcast. Wow. And that's the thing I don't like. That's modern home brewing. (laughs) That's modern home brewing. So let me take you back now 5,000 years to a beer called Boozer. B-O-U-Z-A, which people who listen to the podcast regularly have heard me talking about before. 
Yeah, I never heard Who's of it a, until you, ever. Is um, a 5,000-year-old Egyptian ale, which I originally learned about in Sandal Katz's Wild Fermentation book and have been playing with ever since. There are other brews about the same time um, period in different areas that really cover a similar method. So Boozer is different because Boozer uses clean but unsanitized vessels to ferment and those vessels are open to the air during the fermentation process, not closed with an airlock. The Boozer process uses whole grains that are malted and processed at home. And then all of those grains go into the fermentation. So rather than making a sugary liquid and losing the grains at an early stage, in Boozer, all of the grains go into the fermentation and they stay in that fermentation till it's complete. In addition to malted grains, you also put in grains that have been soaked and made into a par-baked bread. Um, they are also put into the brew, so not all the grains are malted. And then a sourdough starter is used to ferment the brew, to kickstart the fermentation. So that's the process that I learned from well fermentation and, and kind of that's where I started my um, home brewing ancient ale journey. And, you know, when I talk about those two different methods and we've talked about them, you know, both of them use grains and both of them fermented. But apart from that, they are completely different. You know, one's open to the air, one's not. One uses a yeast culture in the laboratory. The other one uses a yeast that's at home. One uses the grains actually in the ferment. The other one doesn't. One uses hops, the other one doesn't. Completely different. In those 5,000 years between the ancient Egyptians making ale, I should say, not beer, and our modern concept of beer, everything in the processing has completely changed. And um, I feel that that's not a positive change. And I'm excited about discovering these ancient techniques and kind of bouncing yeah. off them and learning. And because I want to bring brewing back to where it came from, which is mm. the home. That feels really important that. to me. That's kind of part of my mission. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's a so, good mission. I feel like... You know, people that I've encountered on this journey were saying to me, well, why, why do you want to do this? What's wrong? And I feel like it, it ties so well into what we talk about all the time in the podcast, which is basically everything that we've taken out of the home, we've gone some way to ruining. Industrialization has meant an increase in efficiency in many things, and in food, an increase in portability. But that process has made our health much worse, and it's made our food taste worse, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. And I think, I think it's also generally the trajectory we are, we are on. It's, it's ruining our daily lives. I don't feel like, you know... I particularly want to go back to medieval England. I think living in medieval England was incredibly hard. Mm. But I also think 
that there's a balance to be found here. And the way that we are living at the moment, sitting in front of computers 12 hours a day, driving around in, in box, you know, um, metal boxes, the food that we're eating, the way that we're treating our environment, the way that we're educating our children, the way that we're <laughs> eating bread that's been whipped up in a factory oh. and sold to us in, in plastic. I feel like we are way off it. We've gone way too far. Yeah. And, and the more we can decentralise, the better. And, you know, part of that is doing it yourself. Part of it is taking your customer away from big entities, which we've talked about. You know, we've had two episodes on quitting supermarkets. Um, and, and really, there is a lot we can do to mitigate what industrialization has done and is doing to our personal lives and our relationships and our communities and the world. Absolutely. So I just, um, I'll get off my... <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox. Wait until I start no, talking about yeast, soapbox. then I'll get back on my soapbox. It's a good soapbox. Well, I want to so, ask you well, one or two questions yeah, before on. you move to the next section, please if do. I can. Yeah. Um, one yeah, is when you talk when you talk about <laughs> anytime you talk about taking things out of the home and moving them to a factory. There's another mm. thing that besides the actual product itself, there's something that um, is lost. Mm. And something that is unfortunately gained. And the thing that is lost is usually from anything you produce in the home, there's a bunch of beneficial byproducts because when you really look at ancestral food, because food was scarce for all of human history up to basically the last 200 years, then you didn't waste any of it. <clears throat> so you found alternate uses. And I wanted to ask you if there were any byproducts of beer. And the other yeah. thing is that you negatively mm -hmm. gain when you move something to a factory, you mm. produce a byproduct there that is typically a waste product and often yeah. can have detrimental effects to our environment or even our health in instances of like in the 1930s where all this industrial leftover malted barley and things was being fed to cows and if you listen to the raw milk episode, then you heard a little bit about that and the bad effects that that had on cows and things like that. So could you say if there's any byproducts of beer that can be used? Yeah. Health? Yeah. So um, ever since I've started making beer two years ago, I use all my spent grain to make bread. So I haven't thrown away anything. So you're proving that theory that you addressed in the beginning, Allison. Mm. You're probably right. They're probably right. It was beer first and then bread. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that. But no, the I feel like, kind you know, of thing. When, you, when you read Stephen Harabuna's Sacred Herbal and Healing Beers, you realise how fundamental alcoholic drinks were to communal ties and um, celebrations and rituals and how that moving of your state of mind was magical, was seen as incredible and you know, beer wasn't around all the time. Alcoholic drinks weren't just there. You had to actually make them. You had to do something to create them. And no one knew what yeast was. So it seemed like it was a magical process. And, you know, beer had a very, very different place in, in those societies than it, than it has now. Um, and that Stephen Harabuna book explains that 
really well. I can't I can't remember what I was saying before that. I got all excited about <laughs> the history. No, I'll I'll put you back. Ceremonial I'll put thing. you back on track. Thank you. But <laughs> but is it is it <laughs> This is something that always strikes me when I read about the medievals and and you know mm. things like medieval cosmology and the um, the sorts of legends and tales and things that were being produced at that time. Even though we understand what yeast is now, is it any less magical? Like, is it really? I don't no, think so. <laughs> I don't feel like it is. I don't feel like you were it is. going so when to you read... tell us about yeast, and then I yeah. Oh, I no. will, I will. Yeah. When you read, I want to say, when you read the kind of myths and the poems that come from these um, societies that went before us, you realise how amazing what yeast did was to them, you know, how they talk about what yeah. could be doing, how they have rituals that things have to be stirred in certain ways that certain people weren't allowed at certain times or a woman had to do it or this had to happen. Right. You weren't allowed to do it when you were stressed. You know, all these just really oh yeah life kind of life warming things that were part of a ritual that was those communities or comforting and, um, and stable i mean yeah. when when you're in a world as unstable as you know when you know the anglo-saxon jutes can come over the hill and kill you all yeah. suddenly yeah then having some stability and the rule is you don't touch it when you're this like that actually does yeah. provide some comfort you know like I think yeah. often of people in um, refugee camps and how traumatic that is and the mothers that will enact the bedtime rituals to try yeah. to keep yeah. some sort of rule of stability like those things are really important and I think when we yeah. look back as you and I spend a lot of time doing when we look back and like you said when you look at the different beliefs and legends, although they didn't use words like, you know, microbiological or things like that, they used different vernacular, but the description is just as accurate, yeah. which is kind of mind blowing in, in ranging from like astronomy to, um, I don't know, just all kinds of things. Mm. So exactly. It's a, it's a, a thread that runs through every mm -hmm. part of the community, an attitude, a kind of a a, a wonder. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing, I think. So let me talk about yeast. <laughs> so most yes. people who uh, recreate medieval ales, we were just talking about this before we started recording, do it with commercial yeast and airlocks. So I remember getting quite excited reading... Um, learning about a book by Patrick McGovern, who's an archaeologist who's been and, you know, actually discovered shards of pottery with yeasts on them and malted bits of barley. And he's Gosh. worked with Amazing. breweries in um, America to recreate ancient beers. And there's a book on it. And I started reading it. And then I realized really very soon that he was using yeast from a lab that had been developed in a lab and he was using an airlock to make his beer because he's making a beer for a brewery that oh. wants to sell its beer and people expect a certain right. taste. And so they want to generate something that's palatable to the majority of people. Right. Um, <clears throat> another kind of, I've got another interesting kind of anecdote around wild yeast as well, but let me first of all say why, why um, wild yeast is important. So for me, I want to recreate um, ale as it would have been made in the home and a huge p 
part of that is wild yeast. People who were making beers from 7,000 years ago up to 200 years ago were not using yeast that had been cultured in a lab. And it feels very important to me to work on creating a wild yeast population for my beer, even though it makes it much harder. And I feel that there are two issues really with yeast and wild yeast. Number one is diversity. You know, diversity is such a, a, a word that we know is so positive. And having diverse cultures is positive. Having diversity in our soil, in our environment, having biodiversity, all that equals strength, resilience in our environment. And, you know, sometimes it's good to have uniformity and efficiency, but not for everything and not here. We don't need to. The second issue is, is democratic. And that's something I feel really strongly about. And I feel it around sourdough as well. You know, these yeasts, these bacteria are in our air. They're on our grain. And someone has taken that and is making a profit from it. I feel like, you know, sometimes, again, when we're living together in communities, it's good to give someone management of something. If you live in a city and you want to have power in your house, well, you're not going to go and try and get that power yourself. And, you know, unless you've got solar panels, it's difficult. In that situation, in the situation our society finds itself in big cities, then probably it's a good thing to have someone providing you with power. But we don't need to do that for yeast. You know, this stuff is all around us. And right. when you when you look at brewers that are recreating medieval ales, they are using packet yeast. And even, you know, there's, there's brewers who say, well, I'm going to create a beer from a local yeast. And so they'll get, for example, some plums or something, and they'll take the yeast off the skin of the plums, and then they'll send it to a lab, and they will isolate the really? single yeast culture, yep, that wow. has been on that plum, and they will recreate it and, you know... Um, <clears throat> create it in a lab and then they will dry it and packet it and they use that single yeast culture to make the beer. Really, wow. there, is, there is no one that <laughs> I know no of, if someone knows of someone, tell me, but there is no one who's using wild yeast like that and also not using hops. Because, you know, people... I can understand on a commercial level, you know, you're brewing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gallons all at a time and you've got to sell it and you've got to sell it to a market that has a particular taste for beer and therefore you want it to taste a certain way and you want it to taste a certain way on the bottle you're making this week and the bottle you're making next month and the bottle you're making the month after and so I can understand the pressures on commercial breweries but you know I'm doing this in my kitchen and so one of the big things about bringing beer home is using a wild yeast. The Second one for me is using minimal equipment because we should be able to make beer with what we have in our kitchens. My ancestors in England did that. You know, they had big kettles, they had big saucepans. They used the equipment that they used for cooking, you know, things right. that would go on a normal stove. Right. So it's important to me that, that I'm not buying extra equipment to make beer because I don't need to. And then the last one is no hops. And that one, 
is really because I'm making something for my home and I don't mind that it only lasts three or four days. I'm not going to sell it to anyone. So why would I use hops? In addition, I don't really like the taste of hops. That's where we started this episode. I don't right. like their bitter right. flavour. And I know that hops um, make you sleepy. They're soporific. And they also got estrogenic properties in them. And, right. you know, if I'm going to bring something like that into my life, I want to do it very consciously for a particular mm -hmm. reason, not just because I want it to be in my beer. Is that where the... And so... Mm -hmm. Is that where the beer belly comes from, is that Easter Well, yeah, property? yeah, exactly. That's part okay. of the reason why, um, yeah, beer bellies are associated with men who drink a lot of beer. So and ale, yeah, go on. Well, Ask on. <laughs> I was going to say something about hops, so I wanted to say it before you yeah, move no. to the next thing. Yeah, do. Um, I looked right after you mentioned it, and Holland, um, in, mm. in the Netherlands, they started using hops in the 1390s. Yeah. And the pilgrims arrived there in 1607, obviously. So they had already been using it for quite some time yeah, there. For many the trip centuries. took 66 days. So I think we can safely assume that yeah. they brought a hoppy beer. Yeah, completely. Probably. So, yeah, that, that's just part of the grain bill of ales, of beers around now. But ale used to be grain, water, yeast. The grain was malted at home. Right. The water right. was the water around and the yeast was the yeast that had been cultured and shared around communities, maybe shared with the bread makers, maybe not, yeah. but certainly shared within community. And that's the ale that I want to make. I forgot to tell you something, another little anecdote around yeast, which I'm going to go back to, which is that at one point during our journey, the last four years, the last two years, I wanted to use a commercial yeast to see if a problem that I had with my beer that I was uh -huh. trying to surmount was because it was my yeast. Okay. To see what would happen if I used a commercial yeast. So I, shock horror, bought a commercial yeast. And we used it and we made the beer. We didn't put hops in. We did everything else the same as we'd done previously. And both of us felt decidedly ill after drinking the beer. Really? The beer that we're making with our own yeast is very low alcohol. I haven't said that before, but it's as as well as being, you know, a different flavour, it's very low alcohol. Um, and generally, you know, we'll feel the effects of the alcohol, but we won't feel unwell. And yet this commercial right. yeast that we used the one time, again, we felt the results of the alcohol. I don't think it was particularly more alcoholic. Uh -huh. And yet we were completely knocked out. Rob had a really bad headache oh. and oh. I was just wiped for the afternoon. And it led us to mm, kind of have a little pet theory, which is that, you know, that was a single yeast culture developed in a lab. I wonder what other things are in our wild yeast culture that mitigate or work in synergy with the yeast culture that's making our beer and therefore mean that the effects that that has on your being are not as negative as the effects of a single yeast culture that has been developed in a lab, which is obviously not something that I improve, but it's my, you know, subjective experience right. with it. Um, well, who was that that yeah. gentleman on the Wise Traditions podcast who he has a wine company that you can subscribe 
sort of a situation and get, yeah. you know, six or 12 bottles or whatever you yeah. want delivered every month. And he goes around to all these different wineries and only uses the ones that like they get the yeast off the skin by fermenting their mm. grapes and they grow in like all, all these vintners are people who say that their primary job is tending the soil because that's where their wine is built and things like that. And he described how, I mean, this is wine, not beer, but I wonder if it translates over where he said, you don't really have to list all the ingredients on a wine bottle. I don't remember yeah. exactly. It was some yeah. sort of label law in the thirties, I think. Mm. Okay. Maybe it's the same for beer. Do you know? I don't know if it's the same for beer. <clears throat> I, don't I don't know if know I've ever seen I, the ingredients the list on a wine. beer. So. No, they do generally have an ingredients list. The ones that I've looked okay. at have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, but he but, said that a lot of people report now, presumably they do. And that's why they're saying yeah. they don't hear, but they say that, Oh, when I drink your wine, I don't get a headache. Yeah. I don't Lately. feel like uh dozy or um, yeah. groggy or whatever you want to say. So I wonder if it's similar because he that's alluded to, he, he said that they, he said, you want to use these factory yeasts. And when you use these, mm. um, all these other ingredients and it adds all this other negative properties that it can really affect you in a way that he believes you shouldn't be affected. Yeah. I, the, the world of natural wines is amazing and, and, and beautiful and I hope I will be able to learn more about it <clears throat> as, as I go on on my journey. But yeah. it's a, I'll pre-sign up for that course. <laughs> <laughs> it's a similar thing. I just, you know, when I was talking about yeast, that diversity, we don't know what that diversity brings to our bodies from a wild yeast culture and a wild bacteria culture that a single strain that's been grown in a lab doesn't. And, you know, lots of people who don't have the same enthusiasm for ancestral ale as I do look at these ales and first of all they'll say they taste really bad but they just taste different you know they they don't taste how you would expect a beer to taste because they're not bitter you know they don't they don't have the same mouthfeel they're they're kind of thicker than normal beer they might not be as carbonated as beer because they've not been bottled and, and aged. And, and also they'll be very disparaging of wild yeast. And, you know, because I'm coming at it from a fermentation point of view and an ancestral point of view, I've got different a set of, I've got a different set of goggles on, you know, I'm like, well, bring totally. it on, bring on this wild yeast. You know, this is yeah. what we used to do for the, like, all of our history, apart from the last 200 years. And, yeah. you know, the, the people who are very set in their ways with, with airlocks and the way they want beer to taste and, and using hops, well, fine, that, that's beer for them. They can get on with that. But I want to play with this. You know, I want to drink this. Yeah. I want to make this for my family. And I want to to delve into and feel like I'm doing something that my ancestors would have done, just like when I'm rendering lard, you know, mm -hmm. or when I'm making a sauerkraut. That's what my ancestors would have done. And I, and I have such respect for the power and the beauty of ancestral traditions that I want this beer to be alive in my kitchen. <laughs> really passionate about it yes 
and that you should be because when you consider the power of yeast this tiny organization or organism i mean i guess it is an organization really um yeah but this tiny organism like you said um patrick mcgovern was unearthing them in archaeological sites they've outlasted civilizations that collapsed thousands of years ago and these people spent their life cultivating and tending these little yeast communities and the yeast communities lived on and are still here I mean, that's yeah. kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, I feel like, you know, there's a bit in Sandal Katz's World Fermentation where he talks about, you know, how we've developed with these yeasts. And we have. We've had a symbiotic relationship with yeasts and viruses and bacteria and all that stuff since the beginning of time. And, you know, our ancestors used to know how to work with those and use them in a way that would benefit them rather yeah. than just saying, well, you know, we're in charge here. We're just going to take this one little tiny microbe and then we're going to put it in a packet and dry it and sell it. And then you can have something that tastes the same every single time. That's not life. You know, that that feels dead to me, not yeah. alive. <laughs> that, um, that image you just gave me just brought to mind the word, you know, you're colonizing that little tiny specific yeast. So the colonization of yeast literally it's it's extractive like you say oh we we see you we see your entire universe and we're going to extract the one piece of you that we want and we're going to manipulate it and manage it and force it to behave in a way we want it to behave and plug it in only when we want it plugged in Mm. when yeast really should be this vibrant you know, exposure over our entire life. And and yeast mm. does have a measure of control over us too, because when you have certain yeast active in your body, they can kind of make you do what they want you to do, yeah. drive you to yeah. eat what they want and yep, things like that. So maybe we should be a little more cautious before we <laughs> spend some yeast all together. Yeah, yeah. So my process, I mean, we're recording this, but I don't have an end kind of process at all I'm I'm in the midst of experimenting with it along with all the other stuff I'm doing in the kitchen you know I'm developing yeast cultures in various different ways I've been using my um, Turkish millet drink Boza to ferment my beer I've used mead starter to ferment my beer I've tried to develop my own yeast culture and I will continue to to experiment with the methods that I'm using and the way that I'm creating yeast and the different factors that influence each brew and I'm sure that we'll be doing another podcast on this in like a year's time to talk about where I'm at Um, and I feel like there there will be an article on my site which we will link to which I'm just kind of finishing where I will write down where I am and what I've done and what I've learned so far so we'll link that in the show notes and I'm hoping to be able to um, document the tradition the the, um booza the egyptian drink as well at some point in the future so that would be fascinating you can buy those strainer straws still i think actually yeah you know i would i would love to do that now the strainer straws are like that because as i said beer is thicker and if you're fermenting with the grain in which is what the booza does and what the people who were drinking through those straws would have done um the the strained liquid isn't completely strained you know it's not clear and and 
fluid like a beer you would find on your shelf. It's thick. It's got small pieces of the grain in that slip through. And, you know, my yeah. I spec my filtering equipment. I don't know if it's any more advanced than it would have been 5,000 years ago. I'm just using kitchen <laughs> equipment. But when you drink it, yeah. some of that grain comes up, some of that those particles come up. And so those mm -hmm. straws had little kind of filters on the bottom of them. So you could literally, you could probably drink out of the vessel that still had the fermenting grains in because it would stop yeah. those coming yeah. up. And there was a big communal. You'll If you look, you'll see pictures of... Um, drawings on on walls but also sculptures of people sitting around you know and um, big bowls all with their straw because it was a communal thing it was something that people did together it's not a well right. you get this beer and you sit in front of the tv on your sofa on a friday night it was it was part of a communal experience and yeah we we still have a sort of vestigial memory of that don't we where there's a sort of um, I don't know, like a semi-taboo against drinking alone, you know? Um, yeah. And people, when they get together, in the States anyways, it's very common to have alcohol. Like I had a wedding with no alcohol and people were shocked. Um, <clears throat> but the, the alcohol we would be providing if we did wouldn't be anything beneficial like this. <laughs> it would just yeah, be literally yeah. junk food. So we didn't. But um, yeah, I think we have a little bit of that remnant left in our memory. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So that's my, that's my beer. That's, my, that's my, what I've got to say about beer. Do you have any it's more profound. questions, Andrea? Before we um, well, before I we wrap. I guess I would just add that if um, if somebody wants to see a little bit of an overview of medieval beer, do you remember the Tudor Farm video uh, that yeah. you and I had talked about? We can put this in the show three. notes. Mm. Yeah, she makes Ruth Goodman makes beer kind of in the. It's not it's not detailed enough that you could follow her instructions, but you can sort of see the general overview of what they're talking about in that book you had. And then remember when somebody tells you that ancestral beer is gross, <laughs> just look at the other things that they like determine, you know, yeah. if somebody recommends a book or a restaurant to you, like find out what they read and what they eat before you take their <laughs> recommendation. Yeah, completely. And come and come to my house and try some and you'll find that it's, mm, okay. it's gross. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really tasty. Checking for flights it's now. It may it makes your food go down better if you have it before. I don't know. Oh yeah, happens. and you'll feel Isn't really it... good after you've drunk it. You you reminded me. I do have a question. Is it mm, a sure. considered a digestive tonic? And mm. doesn't Stephen Harrod Buner refer to brewing it with different herbs and things like that? Yeah. So Stephen Harrod okay. Buner has loads of different um, brews with medicinal herbs. Okay. I feel like it's a digestive tonic. Um, mm -hmm. I can't prove that. I don't know what's in it. I don't have any scientific equipment. Um, I sometimes wonder, because there's not so much alcohol in it, whether it's actually probiotic as well. <laughs> but again, yeah, I don't have maybe. the equipment to, to measure that, so I don't know. But it, I feel like if I have um, some of our ale with my dinner, my dinner goes down with more efficiency than if I don't. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a it. win win in our house, really. Mm. And I'm excited to it. play with it more. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about it. You've inspired me, Alison. Okay. Well, I'll, to I'll the bite. next episode I'll then. Bite. Cheers.
<laughs> Thank you, Alison. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for, for listening and your lovely questions. Oh, I enjoyed it very Until much. Until next time. Bye. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.